It's FAQ NYC Off Cycle, where the New Yorkers podcast from the newsroom by and for New Yorkers, the city, steps back from the rush of the news to bring in new voices to take deeper dives and different looks into some of the things that are always happening here in the only place in the world. I'm Harry Siegel, and right now you'll be hearing from Ashley Southall, who's covering cannabis and cops for the New York Times. A quick reminder, FAQ NYC is brought to you by The City, a nonprofit newsroom that holds New York's powerful to account and shines a light on NYC's undercovered neighborhoods. And from now through the end of the year, every dollar donated to The City will be doubled, thanks to a generous matching donation. To power The City and FAQ NYC's essential local reporting, donate at thecity.nyc give. That's thecity.nyc slash G-I-V-E. Welcome, Ashley. Hi, thank you for having me. Hey, thank, thanks for coming on. There's so much to uh, dig into here. Um, you've had a bunch of really interesting reporting on this this week. Um, let's see. So recreational pot has been legal in New York State since March of 2021. The first licenses to sell it were only issued last week. 18 months later, so that completes on paper at least the Empire State's seat to sale supply chain. Although, as you reported, uh, these licensees didn't receive their expected loans or locations, or even rules for making deliveries or people using in stores when those open. Uh, and Brooklyn and a few other regions were also excluded uh, thanks to a lawsuit from an out of state seller who was upset that the rules were set up here. So the first licenses were supposed to go to people with convictions or family members who had them, as well as a few nonprofits, to make sure that the communities that got hit the hardest under the old prohibition uh, get some of this equity back. So it's very weird for me. I know New York supposedly decriminalized marijuana use, at least on paper, in 1977, which was the year I was born. But until very recently, marijuana stops were a way to dragnet young men and particularly black and brown ones. Now, your most recent piece is how New York City became a free-for-all of unlicensed weed. And so you have all these people who are not part of this program that's meant to give some of this equity back who are just selling. Uh, it's a weird sort of moment. And I'm hoping you can lay out uh, for listeners who haven't been following like the ins and outs of the office of cannabis management from the state or what the sheriffs here are doing. We have sheriffs um, and just fill them in on where things are at and what all this means. If you're, for instance, worried about a place selling pot across from your kid's elementary school or worried about what might be in the pot you're buying in that place and all the rest of it. Yeah, sure. Let's do it. There's a lot going on. Uh, there are in between the space of the legislature legalizing marijuana last year um, with the governor's signature and with the licenses being doled out last week. There's just been a rush of people who want to cash in on it. And they've opened uh, everything from vans to convenience stores to things that look like real dispensaries. And all of this is happening without any oversight or regulation or enforcement, really. And that's become a real problem in New York. Is it the city's biggest problem? I'd say no. But is it a serious problem nonetheless? Absolutely. So I know that the Office of Cannabis Management sent cease and desist letters months ago. 
uh, to people at open stores and to their landlords, and then didn't want to give those to the press, finally gave them to Gothamist. The, the lots of those stores and locations are still there. I know in the city, the sheriff's office has been like dealing with weed world trucks that didn't pay their tickets and stuff like that as, as another sort, sort of proxy form of enforcement, maybe. Uh, but it seems like there's a lot of buck passing between the NYPD and the state about who's supposed to be responsible for what, if there should be any enforcement. And I think there's also a backdrop of we just got rid of this prohibition that really punished lots of um, black and brown communities in New York. And do we want to start going down the same road now with these unlicensed places? But if we don't, then what's the point of having a licensed system? Like, like is this all ju just as... Uh, only on paper as it seems. <laughs> it's a it's a very confusing and complex matrix that we have going on here. I mean, on paper, the enforcement of marijuana or the selling of uh, cannabis falls to the Office of Cannabis Management. However, this agency is uh, very new, formed by the law, but uh, it took six months to for their leadership to get appointed because of a feud between the legislature and the governor. And so when Kathy Hochul comes in uh, after Cuomo resigns, she appoints the leadership of this agency and they have to get a whole market up and running from licensing growers to manufacturers and now sellers. Um, so they've been really busy. In the meantime, the enforcement of prohibitions on, again, state law forbids the selling of cannabis in any amount. Uh, so that has, that responsibility for enforcing that has largely fallen to local municipalities, whether it's the state police or the local police, or uh, in this case, the sheriffs uh, who are really enforcing this in New York City. And what has happened is that you see in places outside of New York City that some places are willing to go after this aggressively to make arrests, to do seizures. And in the city, you see less of that because New York City was the heart of the war on drugs for New York State, um, and particularly marijuana prohibition. I mean, the Times and other publications have done probably thousands of stories about marijuana arrests and how racially disparate there are. You have guys in, in Chelsea who are able to light up in their apartments, but people in NYCHA are getting arrested for it by the dozens. So... The city has been reluctant to repeat that sort of enforcement, but also the guys who are getting wrapped up in enforcement before aren't the people who are opening stores largely. A lot of these stores are bodegas. They're um, people who have resources. And the people who were getting arrested for marijuana before largely were Black and brown people from low-income communities who do not have resources. Um, so the city's been sort of reluctant to to go down that path and is, has instead relied on this really small law enforcement agency, the city sheriff who's responsible for enforcing civil violations. Um, they are the people who would, for instance, supervise an eviction. So there's about 150 sheriffs in New York City, 150 sworn officers, and there are probably at least twice as many smoke shops. Um, so just imagine I mean, that agency has a number of other things to do. And then to add that on top of it, enforcement has been moving really, really slow. So 
with that slow movement, I know the state was projecting that it would soon be bringing in $245 million a year in annual marijuana revenue. Is that going to happen? Um, are these places, I know there've been a bunch of robberies around then, and we should talk about that. Um, are they paying taxes? Uh, uh, I wouldn't if I was running an unlicensed business and no one cared. Uh, and, and is, is the money going to come in the, the way that was anticipated uh, when this legalization passed and got signed by the last governor, Andrew Cuomo, and now it's getting implemented by Governor Hochul? Well, that's a good question and one that we don't know the answer to just yet. I mean, these illicit dispensaries and smoke shops that are selling cannabis without a license, they some of them paid taxes, some of them charged the sales tax, they paid business licensing fees, they pay all kinds of taxes and fees associated with owning and operating a business. But what they don't pay is cannabis taxes. Uh, it's a total of about 13% for state and municipal taxes that is supposed to go back to addiction services and education and things like that. And they're not paying that. Meanwhile, you have the state licensing 36 of the first 150 uh, operators who will be paying this tax. And that means that they'll have to charge higher prices than these illicit sellers. Um, so they're being thrown into this dynamic where they're being asked to compete with sellers who can undercut them and many sellers who can undercut them. And so whether the state will actually realize any of this revenue or any significant amount of revenue is still in question. And, it, and it's dependent heavily on them convincing people to come to these legal operators who, by the way, don't have storefronts yet and mm -hmm. <laughs> because the state was supposed to provide them and appears to be delayed on that matter. Or loans, right? In terms of equity. Yeah. So so whether they actually are able to get off the ground without storefronts, I mean, it's immensely difficult. It's hard to start a storefront. Can you imagine uh, trying to get the word out there about your delivery business? I mean, they're up against some pretty stacked odds and the competition is fierce. Speaking of stacked odds, there were 903 applicants for these first licenses, uh, which are supposed to go to people with previous cannabis-related uh, convictions here, close relatives who have them, or nonprofits who serve people with um, histories of arrest or incarceration. Mm -hmm. But what is that? Uh, 28 businesses out of 903 applicants, plus eight nonprofits. Like, how how did the state decide who was worthy to get this first set of licenses? And does that suggest anything about what's going to happen for applications in the marketplace going forward from here? Because those also seem like steep odds. Yeah. So uh, it's it's more competitive in some places than others. Um, for instance, in Manhattan, there are uh, over 200 applications and in other places, there are around 45 applications. So the odds are very different for more competitive spaces. What the state has said is that there are so many people applying that we're only going to consider people for their first choice of location. And just for your awareness, people were able to choose up to five locations in the order that they would like to receive them. So if your number two is Brooklyn, 
you're not going to be considered for Brooklyn because that Brooklyn has enough applications. They have enough applications for that. If your number one is Manhattan, then you're probably among more than 200 applications for about 20 slots in the, in Manhattan. So the state is looking at people's first choice. They're looking at the conviction. They're looking at ownership and they're looking at who all is involved in the business. And they're looking for people who not only were criminalized or impacted by criminalization, such as a if you were a kid in school and had to drop out because your parents could no longer pay your tuition. They're looking for those people, but they're also looking for someone who's shown that they can operate a business, that they have transferable skills in competitive markets. So that is what they're looking for in the people who will receive the first 150 business licenses. Now, there are 25 additional licenses for nonprofits. Um, They've gone to Housing Works, which works with low-income individuals dealing with HIV and AIDS. Um, There's Life Camp, a violence prevention organization and one of the organizations in the city's crisis management system, which specifically look for ways to prevent and intervene in gun violence. So they're looking for organizations that are doing work that also affects communities that were impacted by the war on drugs. And that that includes HIV and AIDS. Uh, some people use cannabis to medicate and certainly in areas under prohibition, um, gun violence just became a part of the drug war because they were having to protect themselves and their interests. So we have eight of the nonprofits. Um, there were only 19 to apply. So uh, there will be probably 11 more announced and we can look for similar missions in those organiza- in the organizations that are chosen down the line. Uh, but the competition is really among the businesses. There were 884 applications for those 150 licenses. So that's some pretty stiff competition. <laughs> so the state has this set of cannabis conversations now. And if you've taken the train, you've probably seen the ads for these. <laughs> and it's like, don't smoke, uh, you know, obnoxiously right outside of a preschool and things like that. I, I'm just thrown off reading these, right? Uh, can, can I grow my own cannabis? No. Can I sell cannabis? No, not without a license. Uh, um, I, uh, can kids use it? Uh, no. Is this, is there any uh, sort of, sort of, Enforcement of those rules, is this needed? Is New York taking an example from other states, the rolled out legal marketplaces, starting, of course, with with California and just sort of allowed for this and continue to have very large uh, black markets? Like, uh, is there anything unique to to, to how I'm in New York, so I'm very parochial. And this seems like an incredibly weird and clumsy rollout to me where all these things are happening on paper. Licenses have now been issued, but there aren't storefronts. For these people, there aren't loans they were promised, which are important, because the idea of having these go to low-income neighborhoods and neighbors that were hit hard by the drug wars is these people won't just get crushed when bigger operators come in. Uh, But without locations, without loans, that seems even more difficult. Or is this just how this has gone in other states from what you've seen? Are we we following a sensible script? Are we blazing brave new ground? Are are we just uh, botching this? Or is it too soon to say from what you're you're saying? Well, it depends on which aspect of it you're speaking of. I mean, certainly everyone has California in mind as 
a model, but also a cautionary tale. The illegal market for cannabis in New York is certainly, it's just left the legal market out to dry. I mean, those operators are struggling. Uh, those who are who are trying to do it the right way are really struggling against those who are undercutting them. And that is something that people would not like to see in New York. But what New York has done um, from the outset was to put that mission of centering um, communities and people who were criminalized by the war on drugs at the heart of their effort and at the forefront, prioritizing them for opportunities. That has been a very deliberate thing that New York has done that we haven't seen from other states. But carefulness takes time, right? And so um, that has taken more time than a lot of people wanted. And in the meantime, this illegal market has just metastasized um, and the Office of Cannabis Management, like I said, you know, they on paper have the authority to do enforcement, but they're still staffing up the agency. I mean, it was just created last year. And so they don't have the bandwidth to do the enforcement. And certainly many of the people I talk to believe that the city has a compelling reason to do so, that this is their responsibility to protect the residents of the city from cannabis being sold to kids, from unsafe products making it out on the street. They're all types of what they say is is that you know if these people are selling cannabis without a license they're probably violating other municipal regulations they are probably not following the health code they are probably not paying taxes they are probably um parking illegally i mean that's what they got <laughs> weed world on <laughs> So, I mean, there's certainly room for the city and the state to do more. Um, And they they certainly will have to if this market is going to be, this experiment is going to be successful and not become some some consolidated corporate monopoly. Which is interesting because that that, that seems like the the fascinating middle-term threat and Mm -hmm. issue. And the short-term issue seems to be very not corporate operations just just Mm -hmm. coming in while the going is good. So the same way, if you're setting a movie in New York in like very specific areas, you might have a whole number of beeper stores or or Edison lights in in hit places. Like you you would set 2022 with uh, COVID uh, tents all around Midtown. You'd set 2023 with weed stores and ones uh, with big neon signs, dispensary all around the city. I know we have a bill that got proposed in the uh, state Senate that would have uh, expanded the definition of a sale, sanctioned penalties for unlicensed distributors and retailers. And there's some argument now about who can charge or penalize them. Um, I don't think the uh, assembly has brought that bill up so far. I think you were telling me before that from some of your reporting, there are, uh, you know, all these these unlicensed places that are selling stuff that, that appears to be from California. It's got the stamp. Like, do we have any sense of what's actually in those products? Not at all, because there's no oversight. Um, there's no one uh, who doesn't have an interest in these companies checking and saying, this stuff is good, this stuff is bad. You know, one of the things that I, when I was reporting on dispensaries, I met People um, who kept saying, well, the stuff I use, it's from California, so it's tested and regulated out there, so I feel comfortable. Well, number one, you don't know if that packaging is counterfeit or if it's real. And even if the packaging is real, you still don't know 
whether that product has been tested and deemed safe from contaminants like mold or from toxic chemicals. Although some farms use pesticides and pesticides are toxic to humans <laughs> in some ways. They've been linked to a number of uh, diseases and different disorders. So you want to be careful about what you're consuming. And and um, and and so consumer beware, for instance, was the message from Brad Holman, who I talked to after he sent a letter to the mayor, concerned about all the shops that were popping up in his district that were just openly selling cannabis. And uh, sometimes uh, uh, shrooms and other fun things as well, pretty openly at this point. <laughs> yeah, I went to one place and someone came in and asked for uh, the mushroom chocolate bars. And they were like, no, we have the syrup, it's, but it's next door. Um, so, yeah, they're... <laughs> They're, they're selling all kinds of things. Psychedelics have not been approved for use in New York. And also, you don't know what it takes to make a shroom to, into a syrup. Like, what goes into that process? And is is there anything in there that could harm me or kill me even? You don't, you don't know. Um, and New York has long had an underground market where people got things from others that they knew. They had a plug or connect, as they would say. But these stores are an entirely different beast from that. And I think people uh, just need to be careful. And there've been a bunch of robberies with this, uh, with, with these stores. It seems like there's more of that this year than in recent years. I think most recently in Astoria, but all, all around the city, what's happening with those. Oh man. Um, so we asked the police department for data on robberies targeting smoke shops, but of course they didn't give it to us. Um, and it's not clear that they actually have the data in any kind of way that uh, is readily accessible. So we, I decided to just look at every police department press release that they've sent over the last uh, three years, since 2019. And what I found was that out of about 50 releases, 28 of them were for robberies targeting smoke shops. And almost half of those were places that were selling CBD or uh, illegally selling cannabis. And um, <laughs> so the suggestion from that data is just that there has been an, a pretty strong uptick of robberies targeting those smoke shops. Now, sometimes they're targeted for the cannabis product and because they have that stuff. Um, other times they're targeted because they have lots of cash on hand. And then third, a lot of these shops have ATMs and there was well, there was one uh, pattern where the, the guys targeted like 20 places and they were just going in and snatching out the ATM. And one of those places uh, was a smoke shop. So, uh, and 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 these, these situations have escalated. People who've tried to stop robberies have been shot or stabbed. Um, one man was killed. And so it's not unrelated to the increase in crime that the city has seen so far this year. Uh, you, you mentioned in the email when we were talking right before you came on that. So we don't have the number. We don't know if the NYPD is even tracking the number, but you found that they publicized 28 robberies targeting smoke shops this year through October. And yes. mentioned that that's more than over the three previous years combined. Yes. So that definitely seems like a uh, interesting trend. Have you spoken to any of the entrepreneurs who applied for licenses, received them at this point, or who didn't, about how they feel about the uh, the expansion of this unregulated storefront, uh, truck front, tent, guys in Washington Square Park, whatever uh, market while while they're waiting. 
I mean, look, the, the guys at Washington Square Park are, are a different uh, sort of breed than the storefronts because the guys in Washington Square Park, you know, the legacy market is the underground market that has existed for years. And so some of those guys are, you know, regular uh, street sellers who've been around for years who depend on this for the incomes. But the storefronts are different because they give the pretense of being legal. Like when you're dealing with somebody on the street, you know that that's probably not kosher. But when you're dealing with a storefront, there's sort of this reassurance and this comfort, like I was explaining earlier, with people seeing the California packaging and feeling like comfortable consuming those products. With the Washington Square Park guys, I will just note very quickly, uh, I've known known a lot of those guys. I've been around the park for for 30 plus years. Um, And it it is some of the legacy guys. And there there, there are a bunch of younger guys there as well. It's mostly guys. There's gals as well but like what cracked me up was seeing a few guys who had little setups you know like with the table and whatnot who were also selling like three dollar waters um (laughs) which you know that's fine i'm thirsty i'll buy a water but uh made me feel bad for the licensed hot dog guys you know who are stuck in the park also trying to uh you know make a living off three dollar waters Oh, three out of waters. Yeah. I mean, maybe they should band together and, you know, form a coalition so that you when you smoke your weed and you get the munchies, you can uh, get a hot dog and some water and, oh, and that's, chill that's out. Virtuous. Yeah. Yeah. But the legal guys, so the guys who are trying to go about it the legal way certainly uh, have some concern. Uh, those that are aware. First of all, there's just different levels of awareness of people who are applying for cannabis. There are people who know a lot about cannabis in the market because they've been involved in it or they've kept in touch with people who are involved in it. And lots, some of them have done lots of research. And there are people who are just coming in and want to see what they can do. And the ones who are more inform- informed are concerned about the illicit market, but they're still willing to take the chance Um in New York because down the road, they just think that there's going to be such a reward for getting in. They know New York is hot. Um, New York has millions of cannabis consumers, one of the largest municipal markets in the world, if not the largest. So they know that if you get into Manhattan, Brooklyn, the Bronx, like you're going to do fairly well. And like most Americans, they want that because they want something to pass down to their kids. And, you know, the illicit sellers, some of them want the same thing, but they're just not waiting their turn. And and, and some people have an issue with that. And it's also a huge risk for them. So I was reading in your reporting, various officials around the New York City Police Department explaining that they might be doing something but uh they actually need to witness a sale to do so according to their interpretation of uh state <laughs> law can you explain that because that just seems uh bonkers to me you know when you got a place that just has as a sign right up front being like you know weed here yeah well this is a long-standing philosophy at the police department right um because for years they did buy and bust and they so do them for uh narcotics like uh or opioids but 
they stopped doing them for marijuana around eight years ago because it was just seen as too harsh a tactic for something mm-hmm. that was not nearly as lethal as alcohol or more serious drugs or even as tobacco. So they just fell back on that. So what they're saying is that now, well, now we can't, we don't do the sale, but we still have to see a sale. And what the Office of Cannabis Management is saying is, no, you don't. (laughs) No, you don't. Because right there in the law, it says that this is the possession amount that is legal. And anything above that is a violation a misdemeanor, or even a felony. So if you go in a shop and there's 80 pounds of weed on display, or it's clearly you can see that there is a lot of weed on the premises, that should be grounds for an arrest or some type of action. And also, it's just illegal to sell in the first place. But I think the cops draw a distinction between being displayed for sale and actually making a sale. So they, you know, think that they cannot do anything there. So OCM, uh, I talked to Chris Alexander, who's the executive director. He was also one of the architects of legalization. And he's like, you know, this has really taken a lot longer to educate law enforcement than I thought it would. But we just want to really emphasize to the rank and file cop that like, this is something that you have to help us do because we need to protect the legal market. Um, I but but the, the rank and file cop, right? Like like you you have you have the spokesperson for the NYPD, like the deputy yeah. commissioner for public information. The law only provides an enforcement mechanism if an actual sale is observed. And rank and file cops, mm-hmm. they're, they're, they're going to do what they're told. But like it's yeah. a top down organization. Yeah, and, and and so I don't know if this this is education or some form of political muscle. If you think more enforcement for these unlicensed places is in order, but like that that is the NYPD saying plainly, like we're not interested. Right. It's it's a. I mean, the what the city will say publicly is that they're not interested in 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 refighting the war on drugs or really, yeah. you know, yeah. having that. And they don't want to see Jeffrey Hoffman, who's in my story, uh, mm-hmm. cannabis lawyer and activist. He, he hit the nail on the head. He said, you know, they they don't want the image of them arresting people for marijuana, like. The, the city and the state have hit a reset. And uh, it's just a matter of how do you go about this? So there is there is uh, getting people to understand the law, but also uh, muscling up the political will to do something about it and, and to do something strong about it because you can't just issue violations all day. When you're making thousands of dollars a day, a little $1,200 fine isn't going to be um, anything significant to you. Yeah. That's Weed World. We nominally say they only sell CBD, (laughs) whatever. But I'm just saying they're treating these tickets, van confiscations, uh, all all this stuff. Uh, I've heard that they've lost some inventory to the sheriffs in one of those. Mm -hmm. But they're treating all this as as a cost of doing business, like reasonably, I think. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if everything's all civil and, and full disclosure, you know, I still smoke cigarettes. I'm an idiot. Um, I like weed. (laughs) I'm, I'm not I'm not itching for enforcement uh, particularly, but it does it, it does seem sort of remarkable to just uh, put out a set of rules and have people operating totally outside of those rules mm-hmm. at the same time. And then and then you have a lot of bodega owners who, who, yeah, maybe they have more resources than some of the legacy sellers. But these are not, for the most part, rich people sinking right. like significant funds into this because the money's there and it seems fine. And I'm going to feel terrible for those folks 
if they do end up losing their businesses at some point as the licensed people came in, you know, like they're, they're investing mm-hmm. uh, their lives in this. Uh, at the same time, if they're allowed to just keep selling, those licenses aren't going to be worth very much. It's, it seems like a, a real conundrum at the moment. Yeah, for sure. It's it's bold and risky to get out there and to be selling something illegal very openly. Um, or I, it's not something illegal, but it's uh, to be selling without a license and therefore, you know, affronting the tax man. Um, you know, the, one of the things that always gets people is tax evasion, right? So um, that's that's one crime that the government has shown a, a willingness to enforce. Um, and so if you are out there opening a shop and the government is, doesn't feel it's getting its taxes, man, your day is your day is coming. And part of it is the counsel they're receiving. A lot of these shops believe that they are protected under the law because it provides a safe harbor for illicit sellers and their lawyers are telling them, look, you can you can do this. This is OK, because uh, the the definition of a sale uh, is much narrower in this law than it was before where any exchange of cannabis was a sale. Now it's in exchange of cannabis in exchange for compensation. Oh, that means you can help facilitate the giving of cannabis or help people obtain cannabis and be a nonprofit. And that's, you know, how one of the places operates. And I, when I spoke to the lawyer, he said, don't you think if they could shut us down, they would? And, and they haven't. So there may actually be something there, or the, but it may just be a lack of clarity, which um, would explain why the Office of Cannabis Management asked one of the state senators to introduce legislation that would specifically criminalize uh, cannabis sales by retailers and distributors. It would make it a misdemeanor. Now, that passed the Senate, but it didn't make it to the Assembly because it was literally the last day of a legislative session. <laughs> so um, they, there is some possibility that they, that that will be revived. But what appetite the legislature has for more criminalization? I don't know. Um, in the meantime, the Office of Cannabis Management has adopted some, or not the Office of Cannabis Management, but the control board that oversees the office adopted some emergency emergency regulations last Monday that said, hey, if you're selling out of a van, if you're selling out of a store, if you're giving people the impression that what you're doing is legitimate, we're not going to give you a license. And so they've they've really kind of they've kept their promise that they're going to deny licenses to people who are doing this unlawful selling. And that's going to be a choice uh, that a lot of people are going to to make that whether they want to continue going down this road and take that risk or if they want to back out and just, uh, you know, get back in line with everybody else. Um, so we'll we'll see. But there are people who don't want to get involved in the legal market at all. And I think those are going to be the people that we see continue. Ashley Salem, thank you for taking the time and uh, getting into the weeds haha, with some of this. Um, <laughs> please do come back on. And uh, if you can, just give a sense of what you're going to be looking at going into this coming year and the first storefronts uh, and all that as, as that part of the market comes into existence. 
Ah, uh, there's so much. I mean, one of the things that we talked about in in our conversation that we will probably be looking at more is the safety of these products. We'll be looking for data and probably doing some testing of our own on on products that we obtain from some of these stores. Where is this coming from, and what's in it? Um, that's that that's a question that needs to be answered. And so we, I hope to look into that. Um, certainly, we will be looking at you know how these entrepreneurs and these nonprofits that have the first licenses are going about getting to sales and how it goes for them over this time. And the state has promoted legalization as a way to repair the harms of the drug war. And so one of the things we'll be looking at is is how and whether they're actually achieving that goal. What happens next? Who's who's next for licenses? Um, who these people are, and and I, there's so many. One of the things that I really love about this beat, and I was really grateful to get it, is just the sense of opportunity that it's given to so many New Yorkers. I I talked to hundreds of people since over the last couple of months since starting this beat, and they just have all sorts of ideas. And I really look forward to sharing some of the stuff that they'll be doing. Nice. Ashley, thank you again. We really appreciate it and, and your time. And we'll be reading your reporting. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I look forward to talking more about cannabis in New York City. F-A-Q. This has been FAQ NYC. We're a part of the city. A nonprofit, nonpartisan newsroom dedicated to hard-hitting reporting that serves the people of New York. From now through the end of the year, every dollar you donate to the city will be doubled. And you can do that by going to thecity.nyc slash give today. That's thecity.nyc slash G-I-V-E. We are headquartered at NYU's McSilver Institute for Poverty, Policy, and Research and are a proud member of the Brickhouse Cooperative of Independent Journalists, Critics, and Artists online at popula.com. Our host this episode was Harry Siegel, who's also our executive producer. And I'm our engineer, Adam Kimera. A special thank you to Ashley Southall of the New York Times and to you, listener, for joining us and making it this far. Be kind, be cool, and we'll be back soon with more. <laughs>